0: Brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, I wandered a little bit, I played a little cube, I did a little arena drafting, and I came home to MTGO GRN Drafts this afternoon, and it was great. I'm so glad to hear it. I'm also really excited to get to talk about this new format that everyone's playing. M19, I think is what it's called. <laughs> I hit I hit the M19 wall today. Yeah. I've been defending M19 valiantly, and I just, I never want to play another match ever again. So what happened? I just lost like several times in a row in absolutely brutal fashion, and there was nothing I could do about it. And I just, I'm off it. Like, why would I want to do that when I could play Cube or GRN? Yep. Yeah. Okay, fair. Fair enough. I guess it's good
1: to like grind for rares you need for Constructed, which you were also doing?
0: Sure. Yeah, I had to play some Constructed because I ran out of gems. It felt so bad. I sent you a text that said I needed help. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I did a bunch of M19 Quick Drafts, and I like 7 one would feeling great. And then I went like 3-3, and then like 2-3, and then 1-3, and then I ended with like... <laughs> another one, three. And I have no currently no gold, no gems on on Arena. So (laughs) okay, so if anyone wants to,
1: you know, throw some gold or gems, Ben's way. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it works. I know. I know it doesn't. (laughs) Well, that's nice that you've been uh, streaming Arena that much, though. I think uh, your viewers have definitely been enjoying it.
0: Yeah, it's been great. So if we check in on the trophy leaderboard, I've got still the same 42 uh, GRN drafts, plus a new one that I'm hopefully going to trophy with. So I've still got 11 trophies there, 86 and 39 for 69% win rate. In Cube, I've done nine drafts. I have a 20 and seven record, three trophies, 74% win rate. And in Arena Quick Draft, I've got 11 drafts for a 59 and 22 overall record with five trophies and a 73% win rate. That was in the 80s until I tanked M19 here <laughs> this morning. Mm. Uh, And Arena competitive drafts, I've done seven drafts, 21 and 11 record, three trophies for a 65% win rate.
1: Yeah, I wish they had a trophy leaderboard on Arena. I'm sure it will be coming soon. But for whatever reason, that really does make a difference to me. It really, really tickles my competitive funny bone. I have no arena drafts to speak of, unfortunately. Um, I have done three more guilds drafts on Magic Online, so I'm up to 134 drafts. I did get two trophies, though, so 30 trophies total, 261 to 135 and a 66% win rate. And Cube, I've got 13 drafts and six trophies, 28 and 11 for a 72% win rate. Dang, that's insane. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we're going to talk about this in just a little bit, what our like philosophy is for the modern cube. I think it's a really good introductory cube for folks. And I do think we have sort of figured out, I don't know, it's not a solved format, but it feels close to it. I definitely like know what I want to do in this cube more so than like in others where I'm like, oh, I could, I could go down this route. I could draft reanimate animator I could do blah. It just feels like, nope. I like know the three things that I want to be doing in this format, and I feel pretty strongly about it. Yeah. Um. So before we get into that... Gotta talk about that. Patreon. Patreon.com slash Limited. That's the place to give back to the show if you so choose. I just cannot say thank you enough to all the folks who have decided to dip into their pockets to show some love to our podcast. And we want to just give a little bit back to them. Like give them access to our Discord channel. Give them access to our draft spreadsheet with all of our draft logs, with all of our deck picks. Give them access to the show notes so they can see the show in written form. Give them access to a a private hero tier chat in the discord. All those things are available to you if you go to patreon.com slash of Limited. And we want to make sure we shout out each and every person the first week that they join. So we've got some folks to welcome this week. We want to welcome TK, Andrew, Vasya, Kyle, Thomas, Wilson, and Rust. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support.
0: Yeah, we cannot say thank you enough. And it's really cool just to get a talk to patrons in the discord. I just played on Magic Online against one of our patrons, Banalish Dad. Shout out to you. We just had an epic match on MTGO on stream. Super cool just to get to interact with people that like what we do and want to give back. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So let's let's dive in. We're, we know that not everyone is, is drafting cube on Magic Online. So, you know, if you want to fast forward the next five minutes or so, we'll, we'll be done chatting about the cube and we'll get into our round table discussion for the week. But we did want to talk about this just briefly because it will be online for the next like week and a half ish. So modern cube, I've been referring to as the garbage cube or like the upside down cube, because it feels like, and we sort of came to this conclusion at the end of the last time they had released modern cube. It sort of feels like you have to resist all your natural urges, like take the thing that you take the card out of the pack that you feel like is the worst card. Now that's obviously kind of
0: hyperbolic, but but that is sort of the conclusion we came to, right? Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, my natural tendency is to first pick Signets, first pick brown mana, try to ramp out some Planeswalkers, do that sort of thing. And I just don't think you can afford to do that in this cube. You really, really, really want to curve out and affect the board early and then follow that up with Planeswalkers, because this this cube really does revolve around like Planeswalkers and four and five mana threats. And there are not a lot of good like one and two drops that you would be happy to play in a normal cube deck. So you just have to settle for playing the creatures that are there so that you can pressure your opponent's Planeswalkers or things like that. Having a board presence, it sort of feels like Hearthstone in that way, like you really get rewarded for having a board presence in this cube. And I do not feel that way at all about any other cube I've ever played.
1: Right. I mean, I feel like that's a strategy, but it doesn't feel like the only strategy. But here it definitely feels like if it doesn't have power and toughness, if it's not a planeswalker, if it's not affecting the board in a very meaningful way, then I really don't have time for it. To talk a little bit more specifically, we feel red-green aggro, in our opinion, to be the best deck in the format. Um, It's not a traditional mono-green ramp deck because you're really only trying to get to like four five and maybe a couple six drops uh tireless tracker shout out is i think the best card in this cube
0: i absolutely think it's the best card in the cube it's so backbreaking it's a threat at three mana generates card advantage and must be dealt with it pressures planeswalkers and if it goes unchecked it's just going to win you the game and i was talking to somebody in twitch chat somebody was like well if you like tireless tracker so much is tatiova really good in this cube and it's not at all like they're two totally different cards like tatiova's five cmc you want your five mana plays to be absolute haymakers like with haste hasty dragons so like the fact that she's gold like and is not a great attacker like those two two totally different cards there mm-hmm. yeah for sure it feels a bit like ixalan in the sense that you really want those
1: good one two and three cmc plays but there just aren't a lot of them um, and so because good cheap plays are at a premium you don't need to prioritize random late game plays i feel like that's one of the initial level ups in cube is you realize you don't need to first pick those six mana bombs those seven mana bombs Because if you want a finisher, you'll get a finisher in cube. And that definitely feels to be the case here. Like, at 4CMC, that's where, like, the good stuff happens in cube. That's where you get your Planeswalkers, your great 4-drops, and then, yeah, you get your Dragons at 5, your Titans at 6, etc. But you don't want to fill your deck up with those cards. Like, you really need to know what the best haymakers are in those slots and really don't need to take anything that isn't those because you'll get replaceable five drop and six drop finishers.
0: Yeah, and so speaking of those best cards in that slot, at five CMC, some of the best top end things in the cube include Sky Sovereign Console Flagship, also known as the boat, affectionately, Mm -hmm. Uh it's like a five mana artifact, six five, when it ETBs you deal three damage to a planeswalker or a creature, and then it also does that same thing after you crew it and attacked with it. Thunderball Hellkite is probably the second best card in the cube, I think, maybe behind Tireless Tracker. Three Red Red for a 5-5 five, five Flying Haste Dragon. It just kills Planeswalkers dead, and when it ETBs, it does one to all other flyers and taps them. Glory Bringer, again, like Three Red Red for the 4-4. Four, four. Haste, if you exert it, you can deal 4 to a creature. A lot of times it's a 3 for 1. You play it, you kill a Planeswalker, and you kill a creature on their side of the battlefield. Inferno Titan is another one that's way up there. So just you got to make sure you have the best cards in your 5-CMC and your 6-CMC slot when you pick them.
1: Yeah. So those are some cards that we're really excited about. Some cards that we're not so excited about. Ben alluded to this earlier. Signets don't feel great. Like I would much rather have my ramp in my deck be creatures. I want it to have power and toughness if it can. Um, So I'm much happier with the mana dorks in green than I am with the signets. And counterspells feel like a trap. Like blue feels like the weakest color to me in this cube because it doesn't have good early plays aside from counterspells. And I don't want to be the person who's reacting in this cube. I want to be posing the threats. I want to be posing the questions, not looking for the answers, as we've said
0: before. Yeah, and some of the best ways to pose those questions to your opponents in this cube: mono black, mono white, mono red, mono green are all super strong decks. So basically, every mono colored deck but mono blue. This red green Garbo deck that we've affectionately uh, (laughs) coined here where you play like one and two mana ramp cards into some really good hasty uh, three, four and five converted mana cost threats in a red green. All of those are very, very good decks and just sort of drafting a normal deck with a really, really good curve and just trying to make sure you've got like good planeswalkers and good hasty threats in your four and five mana cmc slots yeah i think creatures that are two for ones or
1: certainly planeswalkers that obviously can generate value over multiple turns are more powerful than random removal i'm really not prioritizing like doom blades or that sort of effect unless i'm in red and that burn can hit players or planeswalkers i still think it's valuable especially if it's cheap like i'm still grabbing lightning bolt out of most packs that lightning bolt is in but i'm not really super excited about that like one for one removal at like three cmc or four cmc
0: right so like skin render for example is better than Braska's Contempt. Agreed. Yes, for sure. And there aren't a lot of one drops running around for the hyper aggro decks to play, like not as many as there would be in a more powerful cube. Mm-hmm. So like mid range with a two, three, four, five curve or a two skipping your three drop slot with a two drop ramper into four and five is what really what you're trying to do in this cube.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can get those hyper aggro decks, but there's just, it just doesn't feel like you can get that critical mass of one drops in say a red deck or a white weenie deck, or even a black aggro deck. Your, your, your curve is generally starting out at two. So I think that's... That just sort of pushes everything into that mid-range area. Yeah, and that's how to crush Modern Cube. All right, sweet. Well, I think we can take a departure here from Cube over to Guilds of Ramnica and have a seat at a round table. You got a draft for us?
0: Yeah, let's do it. I just drafted this one on stream today. First pick, you've got a pretty easy find finality over status statue and artful takedown as the next best cards in the pack. So clearly taking find finality there, pack one. Can I ask you an important question? You can't.
1: Is Fine Finality the best card in Guilds of Ravnica? No, it's Clay of the Guild pack, baby.
0: (laughs) Ah, it was a trick question and you passed. (laughs) Excellent. Moving on to pack one, pick two, after you've got Fine Finality into your pile, you see the following cards as options. Pretty weak pack. Sky Knight Legionnaire, I think, is the best card in the pack. And then if you want to stick with what you've got going on, options would include like Demir Guildgate, Karen Dissident, Child of Night. I think those are like the standout cards. There's also a Portcullis Vine in black and green. So really, really weak pack here. So I think one of the things that's really been hitting home for me over the past few weeks with these
1: conversations we've been having about signaling, which I'm excited to not only continue to talk about for this set, but look to apply to future sets, is weighing the balance of the upside of taking a card in a different color that's going to have you abandon what you already have versus the cards that maybe are certainly weaker than those other cards, but are going to allow you to stay the line, in this case, be able to play fine finality. And I just think you've got to take the most powerful card here. There's not even anything close to Sky Knight Legionnaire. Like, I I don't know, if Child of Night were like Whisper Agent, then maybe we're talking, right? Like you could be like, all right, well, Whisper Agent might just be worse than Sky Knight Legionnaire, but not by that much. And it lets us play or lets us keep the dream alive of playing fine finality. And I think that's important. But I I really can't defend taking a random two drop like Child of Night or Devkar Indicent here. Over Sky Knight Legionnaire.
0: So, is there any any thought though that if you know if we're saying Fine Finality is the best card in the set that you just want to hold on for dear life, come what may, and that like since it's black green and black green's frequently open and it's so easy to splash in black green that you're just supposed to take Child of Night or Demir Guildgate here? My guess is in
1: this draft I am probably going to end up playing Fine Finality, but. If whatever the 10%, 20% of the time that Boros is going to be open and what I actually want to draft and someone to my right is taking up Golgari cards or is taking up green cards and I can't even splash it in like a Selesnya deck, then too bad. Like I've drafted fine finality before and not played it. It's a bummer, but it's going to happen sometimes. I just don't think what happens if you take Child of Night here and then you see a Boros challenger next, which is not unreasonable.
0: It's just such a disaster to not take Legionnaire here, I think. That's what I ultimately decided. I had this moment of like, my first instinct was like, I should take Legionnaire. And then I was like, wait a second. Fine Finality is like one of the best cards in the set. Maybe I'm just supposed to do this other thing and hold on because I know I can draft a very flexible Golgari deck that splashes. And then I was like, you know what? That's I'm I'm if that's the route I'm supposed to take, I'm going to get cards like Child of Night and Dev Care and Dissident. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that that statement
1: there of like, if I'm supposed to be in black or green, I'll get those cards. That's not the same statement. Like if you're supposed to be red, white, you may not get Legionnaires. You know, the table can't support two good Boros decks probably depending on how the pack shake out. But like I've had good Boros decks and I didn't see Sky Knight Legionnaires at the table.
0: Yeah. I so my initial I had it was just funny because I had a snap Sky Knight Legionnaire, and then I started to doubt myself and I was like, wait, (laughs) I have this really powerful card. And then I eventually came back around. So I did take the Sky Knight Legionnaire. So moving on to pack one, pick three. This is another tough pick. See the following cards as options. Much stronger pack here. Direct current, one red, red for the sorcery, deal two damage to any target with jump start a dark blade agent, one blue, black for the two, three. And if you've surveilled, it has death touch. And whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, you draw a card. And there's also thought bound phantasm, single white for the two, two defender. When you surveil, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. If it's got three plus one, plus one counters on it, it can attack as though it didn't have defender. And there's also a crawl swarm, four and a black for the four, one flyer, two and a black discard a creature, and you can return it from your graveyard to your hand.
1: In a Golgari deck, do you want crawl swarm or do you want of lights? I want Douser of Lights 10 out of 10 times. I agree. That's why I I was like surprised to hear you read Crawl Swarm as one of the cards in consideration because like, I think one, it's mostly a black, green, gold card. And even there, you don't want it that often. Right. I agree. Um, So this comes down to just direct current versus Thoughtbound Phantasm to me. Direct current pairing with Sky Knight Legionnaire. Thoughtbound Phantasm being, I think, the most powerful card in the pack, but not by like such a huge margin over direct current. But the thing about Thoughtbound Phantasm that's nice is it kind of keeps find finality alive. Like you could be blue, black, splashing green for it with not that much difficulty because you can usually grab the Golgari Guild gates. So I think the fact that I could just be Demir with Thoughtbound Phantasm or I could be Demir splashing for fine finality, which would be ideal. I think that leads me down to take that over direct current. And I've also just been having kind of a rough time drafting red decks recently. I was kind of soft forcing slash hard forcing green decks and it was working out for me, but maybe that was just a small sample size.
0: Yeah, I think I looking back on this pick, it was it was really hard. I ended up between Thoughtbound Phantasm and Direct Current. And I think Thoughtbound Phantasm is the correct pick because of a couple things you said. One, I think direct current is at its best in Is It, and it's really hard to draft Is It? It's good in Boros, but it it really performs in Is It. And I think Boros and Is It are both pretty hard to get into right now on MTGO. And so I think there's more of a likelihood. And, and the other thing that you said is that Thoughtbound Phantasm still pairs and keeps the fine finality dream alive. I think that's the ultimate tiebreaker, because I think these two cards are close in power level. And I, I just, I got seduced again by stupid, sexy Direct Current. <laughs> I just can't help myself. Like, I keep saying, I'm not going to draft red. I'm not going to draft, is it? And every time Direct Current gets me, it's just such a powerful card. So I took it here, and I do think that was a little
1: bit of a mistake. I'm looking at the art on Direct Current, and I think that's you, right? Staring up at the two...
0: Yeah, I'm just mesmerized, mesmerized yeah, by those I just, pillars. I just can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then moving on to pack one, pick four. The draft sort of starts to shape up a little more clearly here. Uh, cards in consideration. Watcher in the Mist, three blue, blue for the three, four flyer. When at ETBs you surveil two. And the two best red cards in the pack are Ornery Goblin and Smeltward Minotaur. And I think probably you've talked me up on Smelt Ward Minotaur enough that where I think that's the best red card in the pack. But luckily, I came to my senses here. This is a really easy Watcher in the Mist for you here after taking Thoughtbound Phantasm. And I correctly moved off of red here, I think, uh, and took Watcher of the Mist and came back to my senses as something that could maybe let me play Find Finality. And ended up like drafting Demir slash Golgari for a while and then ended up settling into Demir splash Find Finality.
1: That's so interesting because I think if I were on the path that you were on, I would have taken Smeltward Minotaur.
0: Yeah, I probably am still just a little bit lower
1: on that card than you. Yeah, I mean, it's not ideal to then have like three three drops because like you really want good twos if you're in Boros. But yeah, I'm glad that you righted the ship and that you also didn't have to draft a red deck.
0: Yeah, me as well.
1: Nice. Well, I think switching into some blue cards is a great way to get into our main topic today. We're going to be talking about counterspells, in limited, in general, but also in uh, specific to how it relates to Guilds of Ravnica, because I think this is a really interesting set for counterspells to exist in. So we've got some some general thoughts about counterspells here, Ben. What, what do you got for us?
0: Yeah, I think the first heuristic about counterspells that you hear all the time is that they're generally not great cards in draft, like maybe D, D plus level of cards if we were assigning them a grade, and you're not supposed to play them without a really specific reason.
1: Right. So I think, you know, the days of counterspell are long gone so we're often given these cancel variants right one blue blue so these three mana counter spells sometimes more sometimes they're they're five mana and they're at rare and they've got some some extra goodies attached to them but generally for limited the the cost of holding up that mana because limited is really just about like curving out and beating down generally like you're not really getting these sick control decks unlimited so so that the cost of holding up this mana as we're, we'll be talking about as we go through these points is quite high in decks that are just trying to to cast creatures on curve
0: and speaking of that you know the cost to holding up counter spells uh, when you're curving out and things like that the other thing that you hear about counterspells a lot of the time is that they get better in sealed because the format's a lot slower and holding up mana later in the game, especially, is way less of a cost to your deck, you know, and people are trying to play slower, more controlling decks with a few more haymakers in them and things like that. So those are kind of like the two things that you hear most often about counterspells. But even recently, they've broken away from that, right? If we hearken back to M19, everyone's favorite, mm-hmm. Essence Scatter was the best blue common there. Yes.
1: Now, I mean we'll talk about this a little bit later, but cheap counterspells are important. And if we're thinking about creatures being the sort of center of limited games, being able to counter a creature spell is very important. Like you can also look at a card like Negate, which is one of the blue counter target non-creature spell. And that doesn't really pack the same punch as it does. If that were a common, it would not be the number one common in any set it were printed in.
0: Right. But just because it's way narrower. And then again, you're running into that cost of holding up the two mana.
1: I, I mean, to piggyback off of why counter spells are so good in sealed or are better in sealed than they are in draft in general is because people, you know, people always ask us, well, what are the what are your tips for the sealed format? And generally, we always say like open bombs, play your bombs, play your good removal or whatever. And that's generally what people are doing. And so being able to have an answer, a hard answer to that six drop bomb to your doom whisper or whatever is pretty important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. People are going to get good rares in their sealed pools and they're going to play them.
1: So what are some times when counter spells are better in game?
0: Yeah, I think counterspells get better. There's several several ways. The first of them is when your opponent is relying on a few key cards to beat you. So the first thing that comes to mind for that like is cube, you know, if you're playing if you're a blue cuber and you're playing against your opponent who's green, you know, if they're investing lots of cards in ramping out mana, like they've got land of war elves, they've got cultivate, to, you know, find two lands, and then they're trying to slam this six or seven drop on turn four or turn five and you have a counterspell, that is great, right? Because you effectively negated those first couple turns of ramping and then you hit their key card. Right. So when your opponent's relying on one single, single card that's really packing a lot of punch, counterspells go way up in value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, I think another way that counterspells get better is when you have other things to do with that mana, right? If you can pass with four mana up, and if your opponent doesn't do anything, if they're trying to play around your counterspell or they don't have anything, or they play something that you don't really want to cast your counter spell on then if you have a different option if you can cast a, a card draw spell or a bounce spell or a removal spell instead that's really gonna up the value of that that counter spell because one of the the worst things as we talked about a little bit before is when you are sort of like all right i'm gonna pass and and counter this spell that they play and they don't play anything and they say pass the turn back to you and now you've essentially like time walked yourself you've done nothing you've done nothing to affect the board you've sort of lit that four mana on fire for your turn
0: yeah absolutely so like the dream scenario for a counter spell would be like as a demir opponent in this format if at four mana like if you're holding up devious cover up chemister's insight and like price of fame yeah you've got like the triple threat there right if they play something you can counter it if they don't if they've got a creature you want to kill you can snap off that price of fame and if they do nothing you punish them like if they try to play around your counterspell, you punish them by playing chemister's insight and draw two cards mm-hmm. yep just the absolute dream there so another way the counterspells get a lot better is if your opponent has cards that you can only interact with before they hit the board for example cards with hex proof so night vale specter comes to mind from the current format cards that have protection maybe in cube or older formats or if you don't have a removal spell that matches up against a key threat like maybe you're a blue red deck and they've got you know a six six or a five five trample siege worm and you've only got hypothesis in your deck you know you're going to want to try to save a counter spell or counter spells are going to get better because that's the only way you have to interact with their siege worm
1: yeah for sure specifically in game if you are not behind on board then holding up counter magic feels great which is I think some of the appeal to those kinds of cards is like there is something very powerful about knowing like no matter what they do, I have protection. So once you get to this point where you're at parity or slightly ahead, it feels really good to be able to pass and hold up counter magic. Or like if you're if you're tapped out and your opponent attacks, it makes a sort of suspicious attack. You can go, all right, well, I'm going to let this happen this time. But then next turn I get to hold up my counter spell. And if something fishy happens, I have the answer no matter what it is.
0: Yeah, feels great. You just have this warm little safety blank blanket. (laughs) The other thing that's really true about counter spells getting better is the cheaper they are. Because as we've talked about just a little bit briefly, there is a cost to passing your turn and not doing anything and hoping your opponent plays a spell that you want to counter. So for example, Essence Scatter as one and a blue counter target creature spell would be way better than, you know, Cancel was in the format one blue blue counter target spell. Just the fact that it's cheaper makes it more worthwhile as far as something that you're willing to hold up because A lot of times later in the game, maybe on turn five or something, you can play a three drop creature, affect the board, and hold up essence scatter to counter whatever your opponent's planning on doing. So the cheaper they are, the better they get. The Lords of Limited patented double spell. Well, so that's when counter spells get better, but maybe not
1: when they're worse, but what are some sort of like negative costs to having them in your deck?
0: Um, They're really bad if you're behind. You know, if we, you know, if limited resources is popularized quadrant theory, if you're behind counter spells do stone nothing to help get you out of that situation they are a zero when you're behind which is probably the most important state of the game for cards to be good in as far as catching you up and things like that mm-hmm. so yes they're great when you're ahead but they're also as good as they are when you're ahead they're also like probably even way worse than that when you're behind so they're a very polarizing card and since games of limited are mostly shades of mid-range, you don't know whether you're going to be ahead or behind. Therefore, like having a counterspell in your deck sometimes is a very real cost. And from your opponent's
1: perspective, if they're ahead and you're behind, and they sort of sense that you're going, all right, well, I passed with three mana up or four mana up. They are not a robot. They are going to sniff out that perhaps you're holding up blue, blue X, and they can see that you have cancel mana. They can choose to do nothing. They can choose to bait out that counterspell with a weaker spell. They are not going to play the thing that they most want to play into that mana because they're ahead and they don't need to. They can afford to play around it.
0: I think another cost to having counterspells in your deck is if you do make that decision and you hold a mana up for counterspell and your opponent plays a mediocre spell, even if it's something you don't really want to counter, you're often forced to use that counter just to spend your mana for the turn or risk falling too far behind on board thereby making your counterspell worse, like it's the snowball situation. So once you decide, like, okay, instead of playing this creature, I'm going to hold up a counterspell, you've got to fire it off that turn if they play anything. This was one of my
1: issues with Syncopate in Dominaria, which was a card that I was lower on, I felt like, than most people. And Syncopate, for those who don't know, is blue and X for an instant counter target spell, unless its controller pays X in response, and if they don't, the spell is countered, it gets exiled instead. Um, But it just felt like you often sort of were forced to counter whatever... You could, when you had access to this card, so if like they played some dumb 2-drop that you were going to blank anyway with your 3-drop creature or your 4-drop creature, you kind of just had to fire it off on turn 2 because looking down the road of like, well, I'm going to play this thing on turn 3 and this on turn 4 and this on turn 5, and when am I ever going to play syncopate? And I think, especially as we look at conditional counter spells, things that aren't just hard counters but have conditions like syncopate does... You sort of have to like take it when you can get it kind of thing like you got to fire it off to get the spell when you can cuz Syncopate can definitely be a dead card later on in the game.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And if you take all that considerate and if you take all that into consideration, counter spells really aren't good cards until you get to later in the game, and then even then they're only good later in the game if you aren't losing the game. So that ultimately ends up being a pretty narrow card for a game of limited. Right. I mean, I think we generally
1: think about counter magic in most sets as sideboard material. Like, all right, well, my opponent's playing a bomb that I really need to make sure I have one more answer to, or my opponent seems to have a lot of combat tricks or a lot of ways to like interact at instant speed or something, and I want to be able to respond to those things effectively. But so some reasons that you would bring them in, but you're often not hoping to start them in your decks.
0: Yeah, I think that's certainly true.
1: So we've talked a little bit about, you know, the cost of counterspells, about when you might be inclined to play them. In actual gameplay, when do you sort of like think about your opponent having them or like when you might need to play around them or how to effectively play around them, that sort of thing?
0: I think it's different from format to format. Obviously in cube, if your opponent's got blue, blue up, like that's the first thing that goes through my brain uh, because counterspells are a lot more frequent there. But in this format, in GRN, I think you're also supposed to be thinking about counterspells when your opponent has One blue blue or two blue blue up because Sinister Sabotage and Devious Cover-Up are just good cards in this format. So I think the first situation where you really want to play around counter spells is if your opponent isn't hitting land drops. So for example, maybe they're holding up one blue blue or two blue blue, but they've missed a land drop or two. That's the first time you can really punish them by not playing a spell. Um, Because if you run into their Devious Cover-Up or you run into their Sinister Sabotage and you let them scry and find another land you know, that's great for your opponent. But if they're missing land drops, it's a real cost for them to hold up that counter spell. So you can really punish them by not letting them use their mana.
1: Yeah. So we've talked about, I don't know if there's a general word for them in white, the the effects like divine verdict that are destroy target attacking or blocking creature. Um, So -hmm. we had this in Rivals of Ixalan and Ben has such strong, passionate feelings about when to play around this card that we talked about it quite a bit on the podcast. And it really helped to inform me because I had some differing opinions and he really helped me like clarify what I was seeing wrong about like trying to get my opponent to get that card out of their hand. And Ben was like, well, you can also just like strand it in their hand if the circumstances line up. And I feel like playing around counter spells versus playing around those kinds of white removal spells is very similar because you can kind of if you have the inclination to know that okay my opponent seems to have a counter spell here or my opponent has that divine verdict effect here how can i play around it can i like decide that they don't get to spend their four mana this turn can i decide that they have to use it on something else because they've invested so much in you know countering a spell this turn that i can say well you've got to counter my two drop now or do I just like stranded in their hand completely? I think those sorts of thoughts about how to play around it line up pretty well, at least for limited.
0: Right. And I think the easiest way to strand it in their hand is if you're ahead on board. That's the dream for you as the person that suspects the counterspell, because if you're you know doing two, three damage a turn and you've got the board advantage, the onus is on your opponent to do something about that. So eventually, if they want to remedy that situation, they're going to have to cast tap out and cast a threat to stop your board advantage, and then you can slam whatever you wanted to resolve through the counterspell. So if you can get ahead against an opponent that has counterspells, it's really, really, really hard for them to catch back up, and it really gives you the opportunity to play around them. And in limited, when the counterspells are generally
1: three or four mana, it's much harder for them to get to a point where they can get to six or seven mana and be able to go, well, I don't want to do anything either, and I'll get to six mana, so now I can play my three drop and still hold up my counterspell. That's going to happen a lot less often in limited.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And the other reason to play around counterspells is if you've got a card that you really need to resolve, that's probably going to win you the game. You know, you've got a fine finality that you really want to resolve or you've got, well, I don't know what are good cards in this set. <laughs> it's only fine finality. That's the only good card. <laughs> the
1: only good card, huh? No, I mean, even something something like a, an affectionate Indric can be a, not a bomb, but that can be like your game turning spell. The thing that's going to get you out of parity to being ahead.
0: Right, or an Aurelia or a quasi-duplicate. You know, think of the best rares in the set. You've got a game-breaking card. You don't want to run that into a counterspell if your opponent's got two blue-blue open.
1: Though I will say there are times when you can't afford to do that, right? You can't just let your opponent have control over the game because sometimes they are holding up that mana and they don't have something to do or they've got something else to do. They don't have a counterspell in their deck, you know? Like, I think there's a lot of, well, you got to play around this, you got to play around this. It's like, I think a lot of the times you got to make them have it.
0: Right. And I think you can maybe test the waters with another spell first and try to bait out the counter spell. Certainly that's also Mm -hmm. something to do when you've got a key spell that you really want to resolve.
1: For sure. So I mean, I think that's sort of an example of when to not play around counter spells. What are some others?
0: Conditional counter spells are great to play around, like certainly in cube or even in limited, if you're hitting land drops, you know, if mana leak is in the format or in this format, Disdainful Stroke. Disdainful stroke's a little harder because it's four mana. But if Mm -hmm. you know or you suspect that your opponent has a card that's counter target spell, unless it's the opponent pays three or something, or pays two, or heaven forbid if they put a uh, four spike in their deck. Um, what mm-hmm. was the, in the Kaladesh block, there was, the thing was cycling. What was that? Oh
1: gosh, I don't remember. I can't
0: remember the name of the card, but it was counter unless you pay one and you could cycle it for a blue. Like you could play around that card and force them to cycle it if you suspected they had it or knew they had it in their deck.
1: Oh, censor. It wasn't in Kaladesh. It was in Amonkhet.
0: Amonkhet. Thank you. So yeah, the more conditional the counterspell is, the more you can afford to try to play around it maybe and punish them certainly if they're or syncopate, for example. Like that gets worse the longer the game goes on. All
1: right, we're going to be seeing rune snag, I think, in uh, Ultimate Masters, which is a sort of variant on a, a mana leak. So, you know, counterspells that are cheap, but You know, that you can play around, that you can wait a couple turns to try and get your spell to resolve, that sort of thing.
0: Right. And sometimes you just got to jam. So when are some times that you're not supposed to play around counter spells?
1: Well, I mean, sometimes when you have multiple threats of the same power level. So if you've got, you know, three, three drops of, you know, varying degrees of of power level, but they're all around the same, like it doesn't really matter that they counter the one because you've got two more waiting to be cast from your hand. That's a time then you can sort of afford to be like, well, if they have it here, that's fine. Next turn, I'll just get to deploy another threat.
0: Right. And I think the other time when you really just cannot play around counter spells is if your opponent's really hitting land drops consistently or has access to four, five, six, seven mana, because they're they're likely going to be able to hold up that counter spell, especially if it's a cheap one, like if essence scatters in the format or something for the rest of the game. And you're just going to end up wasting your own time and letting them craft the game state the way they want it to be as the control player. So sometimes you do just have to jam. Right. And as someone who has played a lot of counterspells in
1: their day, and especially watching you pilot that Demir deck that you drafted from the round table, you get to that turn where you have a counterspell in your hand and you go, okay, I think next turn is the turn where I never tap out. Right, right, right. I think I've gotten to the point where I'm ahead enough or at parity enough that I feel like I just will, I get to now control the game and get to decide like, yes, that resolves. Yes, that resolves. Nope. That's the thing I can't deal with. That's got to go.
0: Yeah, and that's a great feeling. Yeah, it really is. My favorite time to play Magic the Gathering.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is when your opponent doesn't get to play Magic.
0: Yep. So we've talked a lot about why
1: counterspells are a cost to put in your deck, how you can play around them, how sometimes they're not going to do exactly the thing you want to do. I think it's important to talk about why they're so good in Guilds of Ravnica specifically.
0: Yeah, and this is not normally the case. Like to have multiple counterspells, like Devious uh, (laughs) Cover-Up, what's the three drop? That's it for you, buddy. You have some oh, no. lovely parting gifts. Uh, sinister sabotage. Thank you. I, I, surveil was just in my brain, and I couldn't, I couldn't get it out of there. <laughs> and disdainful stroke. All three of those are just like absolute houses in this format. Yeah,
1: and I think Ionize as well can be thrown in there, though that's a rare, so it's going to come up a lot less often. But yeah, so we have three Counterspells, two at common, one at uncommon. I think a lot of the times we get we get maybe one at uncommon and then like a, a sideboardable one, like Negate at common. So certainly the abundance of them is important. I think we need to sort of shout out the existence of Goblin Electromancer as being a reason why these cards are good. So we talked about Essence Scatter being good in M19. Counterspell in Iconic Masters was a very strong card but that's because they're cheap. You could fire them off on turn two or turn 10 and be okay. And they also allow you to double spell effectively in the middle of the game on turn five or turn six. So getting a discount on Devious Cover-Up or Sinister Sabotage, I think is a big deal. And now Disdainful Stroke at being at two mana is already cheap on its own, but being a one mana playoff Electromancer is even better. So I think all of that is, I think a big part at least in blue red decks about why the counter spells are so good.
0: Yeah, that, that makes total sense to me. They also really fit well in the decks games plans of Demir and is it so both of those blue decks are pretty controlling. You can get aggro versions of is it, but I think the control decks much more of the desired version like it's a lot more uncommon and rare based and Demir is definitely a control deck. Uh, unless you get like a lot of the uncommons and you can play the, the mythic Demir aggro deck, <laughs> which is out there. But again, like Demir, it defaults, I think, to a control deck. So both of those decks really want answers to late game threats, which counterspells are great for. And there's also a lot of instant speed options to sort of mitigate those drawbacks of holding up mana like we talked about. So things you can do at instant speed, chemistry's Insight, Hypothesizzle, Whisper Agent, Command the Storm artful takedown, price of fame, there's powerful card draw and powerful removal at instant speed in this format, which is just not the case a lot of times in, in a standard limited format. The fact that you not only have an abundance of options of spells, but that those
1: spells have an abundance of options that like you can pass and hold up a card draw, a removal spell, a bounce spell, like you don't often get that at instant speed in one set. I also think there's a lot of synergy, like the rele- there's relevant text on those counter spells aside from counter target spell. Surveil 1 on Sinister Sabotage is a big deal if you've got Surveil matter stuff in your Demir decks. Devious cover-up exiling the spell in a set with Jumpstart and Undergrowth is important. It's a lot better to Devious cover-up a Direct Current than it is to Sinister Sabotage a Direct Current. A lot of blue control decks do have to worry about decking or running out of win conditions since there's so much good removal in this set. So the reshuffle effect of devious cover-up is great. And I mean, we've talked about it before. Other places are talking about this. You're seeing it on stream a lot. Two devious cover-ups may be your game plan to
0: win. Yeah, I think the one of those that I forget about the most is devious cover up exiling something like when I'm playing around a counter spell and I think about what I want to play into it. Some every once in a while I forget and I'll run a jumpstart card into it, which is just backbreaking. And I'm like, wait, where's my spell? Right. Yeah, because <laughs> I I'm so focused on like them shuffling cards back in from devious cover up. But I forget <laughs> about the exile sometimes because it's like a mythic common counter spell. I know.
1: All right. So we'd love to show some real in-game decision points, either being the player with the counterspell or without the counter. So we're going to sort of re-rack the what's the play from last week and look at some specific board states that Ben has gotten for us this week. So what do you got for us here?
0: So the first thing we've got here is a Salt Goodness deck uh, with a Disdainful Stroke as your only counterspell. You've got some other ways to interact at instant speed. Uh, you've got Conclave Guildmage's ability. You've got Artful Takedown. Yes, that's right. You've got a Slesnia card and a Demir card back-to-back. Boom. Uh, Chemister's Insight, Bounty of Might. So not a ton of ways to interact at instant speed. So your disdainful Stroke's not great in your deck. You're a little, little light on playables. So scene one, you're against Demir and you have a lot of options in your hand. Are you supposed to hold up disdainful Stroke this turn? So let's take a look at what some of those options are. So here's the board state. Your opponent's got five lands in play, three lands untapped, so they could potentially have Disdainful Stroke or Sinister Sabotage that you're thinking about playing around. So they played a Lazav, the Multifarious, on their turn. That's the blue black mythic 1 3 that can sort of copy a creature that's in the graveyard. And so I think it's a little suspicious that on their five land drop turn that they chose to play a two drop and hold up three mana. So that's got my gears tickling here about like what my opponent might have. Uh, gears turning. What what tickles you? Not gears. No, I think you got anyway, it right. Gears are gears are gears no. tickling. Gears are turning in my head. Things are happening up there, and I'm wondering what's going on in my opponent's hand. So I suspect that maybe they're holding up a counter spell. Your board state is you've got a Conclave Guild Mage on the battlefield. Opponent's got a Whispering Snitch in the Lazov. So you're a little bit behind. Um, You've got four lands in play. You're about to hit your fifth land drop if you want to with a Watery Grave that you could pay two life for. Opponents at 21, you're at 14. You've taken some early beats and your hand is the following cards. Bounty of Might, Spinal Centipede, Disdainful Stroke, Deadweight, Pitiless Gorgon, Deadly Visit, and Watery Grave. And so I think there's just a lot of choices for your turn here. The first thing that I decided to do was attack and see if my opponent was going to block with Lazov. Uh, in which case I get a it, which is great for me, plus play one of my three drops in Spinal Centipede or Pitiless Gorgon. Um, and I did do that, and they blocked, so I deadweighted. And that ultimately led to me not holding up Disdainful Stroke this turn. But I think there's like a multitude of options there. And one thing that I was considering before, or if my opponent hadn't blocked my Conclave Guild Mage attack, I was going to play Watery Grave and play one of the three drops, probably Pitiless Gorgon. And then hold up devious cover up on my opponent's turn for when they presumably, you know, played a good five or six mana play. And I didn't really mind too much if they countered my pitiless Gorgon, because again, I have a spinal centipede. So that's one of those things where you've got cards of a relatively flat power level. I didn't really care. And I did need to advance the board because I was a little bit behind on board.
1: Yeah, I just want to throw out real quick that uh, you just said devious cover up and you meant disdainful stroke. That's the counter spell that we have in in our hand here. Yep. Sorry about that. That's right. Uh, So I think Watery Grave is actually a really interesting land here for this decision, because like, let's say they don't block and you want to go, all right, pitiless Gorgon and hold up to Stainful Stroke. If you play Watery Grave untapped and then don't use all of your mana for the turn, it really should throw up some feelers to your opponent like something's up.
0: Yeah, it's a little suspicious for sure, but I I think it makes them have to play around it.
1: Mm -hmm. And is there any consideration that like, well, they didn't have a five drop here. Like, why would I think that they would have something that Stainful Stroke can counter next turn?
0: Uh, Because I think they're holding up a counterspell here. So I think you'll find out really quickly if your threat gets counterspelled. Right. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. So that was the whole that was the whole reason for not like slamming Deadly Visit or something on their Lazav because I do want that Lazav dead. But it's a disaster if they get a counterspell on my Deadly Visit. Right, for
1: sure. Well, and Pitiless Gorgon essentially does the same thing. I mean, yes, they can remove it, but it is holding back Lazav. Like they can't activate Lazav to make it a flyer at this point. So Pitiless Gorgon essentially holds it off
0: right right so if we we've also got the next turn from this game so you did get lazav off the battlefield with deadweight played your pitiless gorgon your opponent deadweighted your pitiless gorgon and then passed with five mana up so they have whispering snitch on the battlefield five mana up and it's your turn so alarm bells should be going off in your head at this point that they're doing something at instant speed and not no longer tickling this five mana is a big deal no i do not feel tickled right now i am full, full on alarm bells yeah so they're either planning to do something like Chemister's Insight, or they've got a devious cover-up, or maybe perhaps the Sinister Sabotage that you suspected the turn before, and maybe they just decided not to counterspell your dead weight for whatever reason. So, I think the proper thing to do here, you've still got Bounty of Might, Spinal Centipede, Disdainful Stroke, Deadly Visit in your hand, and you've got a Tap Land for the turn. So, really not much decision, but you do get to play a 3-drop and hold up Disdainful Stroke, which feels great. And then when you played your Spinal Centipede, your opponent went to devious cover up it, like we suspected with the five mana up, and you got a Disdainful Stroke in response. Now, here's a question for you. Mm-hmm.
1: Is there any consideration to saying, okay, you counter my Spinal Centipede, who cares? And now I have now I have Disdainful Stroke for whatever you do next turn. This feels like a, a, one of those turns where it's like, this is the turn where I don't tap out of Disdainful Stroke mana again, as long as it's in my hand, right? Yeah. So I feel like there's, there's a world where you could... Just say, all right, Centipede gets countered, and now I hold up Disdainful Stroke, and if you don't play anything I want to counter, then the following turn I can either deadly visit something, or I can pass with my mana up and make a two two knight with my guild mage if you don't do anything that I want to counter. Yeah, that might be an even better play too. Yeah. So many confusing options when you have all these like things to do
0: at instant speed. Yeah, that's when magic starts to get really complex. Yeah, for sure. All right. But, uh, what's this next one you got? So this next one is a lot more straightforward. Uh, you're a Boros deck, very typical Boros deck versus an it deck. Game one. And the scene is uh, your turn three, the boards at parity. They've got a Goblin Electromancer. You've got a Skyline Scout. They've got three mana up, but essentially four mana up, for instance, because of Goblin Electromancer. You're about to hit your third land drop on your turn three. Your opponent was on the play and you've got the following cards in hand. Sky Knight Legionnaire, Hammer Dropper, Wojek Bodyguard, Inescapable Blaze, two mountains and a plains. So Sky Knight Legionnaire, Wojek Bodyguard, similarly power leveled threats, boards at parity. You suspect that your opponent's got something to do at instant speed here, maybe a chemist's Insight, maybe a counterspell. Can you afford to play around it here? No, I mean, there's no reason to. Like, them countering your creature
1: here is very similar to if they just had a removal spell for it like and you wouldn't be like well i'm not going to play a creature because they could have doom blade which i i recognize is a different is it's not quite a a one-for-one analogy but it's it's close and i just think like if you don't play something here it's disastrous if they don't have a counter spell so this is sort of like you got to make them have it you're a parody you can't you're not doing anything else with your mana and they could do something else it's not ridiculous for them to go okay chemistry's insight radical idea like that would be so bad.
0: Yeah, would be absolutely terrible for you. So you do have to jam in this scenario. Does it change for you at all? Like, so let's say you're ahead on board. Let's say you've got like a two, three and a two, one and, and you can pressure your opponent. Are you still jamming into open mana here or are you playing around it? If the board were
1: exactly the same here, except I also just had a random two, three. Yes, I would still play a card into
0: that board. Right, because you're not super far ahead and you do get punished if they don't actually have a counterspell.
1: Yeah, like if just if they don't have a counterspell, you are just giving them a card in their hand for free. Like if you play, if you choose to play around it, it's so bad for you to do that. And I think that's a tendency a lot of the time. There's that, like, you know, we talk about like level zero, level one, level two. There's that like level one of like, oh, I recognize that this mana up from a blue opponent could mean they have a counterspell. So I'll, I'll play around it. But like, think the next level is to realize they have a counterspell and I cannot afford to play around it there's no upside for me to do that because if they don't have it and I play around it it's so bad
0: yeah so you ended up jamming Wojek Bodyguard here as you know the least valuable of your three drop threats and it did get devious cover-upped and then the next turn your opponent again missed their land drop and passed with their mana up and it's the same deal the board's still at parity so you've got to jam into it you played a Sky Knight Legionnaire again they devious cover up it again, shuffled their other one back in, and then fast-forward to the next turn, they again missed their land drop, passed with three mana up, and you're like, surely they don't have it this time, so you jam <laughs> your hammer dropper, and sure enough, they had Sinister Sabotage, and you got counterspelled three turns in a row. But I still think every single turn that I played into those counterspells, it was correct to do so, because if I give my opponent no credit for that and I just pass they get to make free land drops I I have to try to punish them for missing land drops there yeah absolutely I I agree with that completely okay so moving on that was a fairly straightforward one but I do think it illustrates that you're not always supposed to try to play around counter spells Uh, this last one here is pretty sweet so you're an is it deck against a demure opponent your counter spells in the deck are ionize and sinister sabotage Other ways to interact at instant speed that you've got in the deck, Dazzling Lights, Radical Idea, Unexplained Disappearance, Sure Strike, Chemister's Insight, two times Command the Storm, and Chamber Sentry Activation if you are so fortunate. Well, I guess it's only two-color decks, so really you're just using it to paint. So not a big deal there on the Chamber Sentry Activation. I'm used to Chamber Sentry in my five-color goodness decks. Yeah. So... These counter spells are pretty darn good in your deck, right? Because they get better the more ways you have to interact at instant speed. And you've got card draw and removal, tricks, bounce. Like you've got the lot at your disposal here. Game one, you're slightly behind on board. Uh, your opponent's got three tapped lands. It was their turn three. They played a Passwall adept on turn two. They played a dark blade agent on turn three. It's now your turn four. You missed your land drop on turn three because you're the unluckiest magic player on the planet. <laughs> you've got a chamber sentry with two counters on it on the battlefield. You drew your third land drop for the turn, and your hand is the following cards. Command the Storm, Chemisters Insight, Leapfrog, Sinister Sabotage, Ionize, and Direct Current. And you drew a mountain. So you've got now, is it Guildgate Island Mountain on the battlefield? What are you supposed to do this turn? You've got several options. You could play Leapfrog, or you could hold up the counterspells. Direct Current doesn't do much here uh, because your opponent's creatures both have three toughness. So really, you're trying to decide between holding up a counterspell and playing a Leapfrog. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you could just pass with a counterspell here. And if they play something that surveils to turn the Dark Blade Agent on, then you get to counter that thing. But that doesn't feel as good as affecting the board. Like, it's unlikely that their four drop play is what you really want to counter. And if they don't play something that you want to counter, it's going to feel bad when you have to do it. I just think playing Leapfrog, which is a clean one for one trade with the Dark Blade Agent, like puts you back at parity, which is nice. So I think that's the play for me here.
0: Yeah, I agree. And then if you continue to miss land drops, then you hold up the counter spells at no cost to you because you have no other spells you want to play. And maybe you get a sinister sabotage something and find your fourth land drop. But the dream is if you play leapfrog and then draw your fourth land, boom, all of a sudden you've got the almost the triple threat. You've got sinister sabotage, ionized chemist's insight, one more land, and you're going to have command the storm too. So I think saving those to when you can operate strictly at instant speed is correct. That's definitely the dream for sure. So skipping ahead to our next scene, this is the second game against this opponent. You won game one. You, were a, you had a little bit of a clunky hand uh, to start the game off, and you're behind. So you're facing down a Night Vale Predator from your opponent. They've tapped out on their turn four. It's now your turn five. They've got a Night Vale Predator on the battlefield. You've got a lone ornery goblin against their Night Vale Predator, and you've got three mountains, an island. It's your turn five. You're about to hit your fifth land drop with an island. You have a Chemist's Insight in your graveyard that you had to fire off on turn 4 because you had no relevant plays, and then you drew Hellkite Whelp and ionize off your Chemist's Insight and drew Sinister Sabotage for the turn. So, drew both these counterspells after your opponent stuck Nightveil vale Predator feels bad. What's your play here? Do you hold up counterspells because you've got Chemist's Insight in the graveyard or do you try to play Hellkite Whelp? What do you think? So, the most mana efficient play is to play Hellkite Whelp. So, that's appealing to me. It also
1: poses an onboard threat to the Nightville Predator, which is also appealing to me because you have no other ways to do that. So I think both of those make me want to affect the board here to compete with their threat rather than trying to hold off any future threats. So it feels like if I get to play Hellkite Whelp here, and then hopefully they don't play something that's like super backbreaking, and I can either deal with it with direct current or deal with it what I with what I have on board. Then I can operate at instant speed for like the rest of the game.
0: Right. You can hold up the ionize. You can hold up the counter spells. You can chemistry's insight. You're you're sitting pretty if you resolve Hellkite well here and they don't land mm-hmm. a breaking threat. So I think that's definitely the play there. And then this is the really interesting one. So moving on to game three against the same opponent. So you've seen that Night Vale Predator in game two out of them. They were on the play in game three. And it's your turn three. So game has progressed normally. They've got three land drops, two swamps and an island of a Dalkin Mesmerist on the battlefield. Your turn three, you're going to hit your third land drop here. You played an Ornery Goblin on turn two. And you have the following cards in hand. You've got a Chamber Sentry, four lands, two islands, two mountains, a Chemist's Insight, and an Ionize. So you've got options here. Do you play Chamber Sentry or do you hold up Ionize? Well, it's sort of cheating because we talked about
1: this before the show and I made the wrong choice. So I'll say what I said before which I think is is now the wrong choice. But I thought that you should play chamber sentry here as just a two-two, And then next turn, you get to live the dream of passing with ionize and chemistry's insight up together.
0: Yeah, and I that's also what I did. And I think that's wrong as well. So I was so tunnel visioned on Yeah, this next turn is going to be so great because I get to hold up ionize and chemistry's insight and I get to punish them if they try to play around my counterspell. I forgot or didn't really consider that my opponent had Nightvale Predator in their deck and that I had no way to really deal with it once it was on the battlefield other than try to trade with it with a Hellkite Whelp or maybe a Leapfrog, heaven forbid, something like that. And so I was like tapped out for Chamber Sentry here as a 2-2, and then my opponent just slammed Night vale Predator on turn four. And I think the board is at parity here, so you don't really get punished by holding up Ionise here. I think it's worth it knowing that your opponent has Night Vale Predator to hold up ionize here on turn three, because they're going to slam it on turn four, probably if they've got it. Or if not, you at least, you know, maybe bait something else out of them with your ionize. But I think just the opportunity cost of holding up ionize here is pretty low. So it's worth it here. And then the next turn, you can do it again with chemist's inside up. But it's worth checking, I think, for a turn to make sure that your opponent can't slam night fail vale predator on four. And I think I got punished for not doing that pretty hard.
1: Now, let's say they just play something, I don't know, kind of random or innocuous, like... Uh, spinal centipede then it feels pretty bad aren't aren't you kind of forced to ionize there i think you are yeah i mean this is obviously the worst case scenario and with the information you have from the the previous games of like well they have nightbale predator and if they're gonna play it i agree they're gonna play it on four and you get to also be a little sneaky and by
0: playing mountain yeah, yeah, yeah
1: to like not show that you have blue blue but all that said Yeah, I don't know. It's very interesting. Counterspells are so tough to like know when to fire it off. There's a lot of like feeling like you're priced in at a lot of times and vice versa playing around them. There's a lot of feeling like you're priced into playing into them even if your opponent has them. I think there's a lot of like meta game within the game or like mini games within the game when your opponent has islands in play and counterspells are playable cards in limited.
0: Right. And in that last scenario, I don't think there's any world where you hold up ionize there unless because, you know, you have not but the, your opponent has Nightfall vale Predator. That scenario is different. If you don't know that, I think you just slam chamber sentry there 10 out of 10 times because the upside of having ionizing chemisters inside available is so huge. Um, so it's just yeah, there's like you said, there's a lot of mini gaming. And I think one of the best ways to go about like figuring it out is just to play magic. Like you just sort of start to get a sense of, OK, I think my opponent has a counter spell here. Or it feels like they have a counterspell here. And, you know, that comes from getting your stuff counterspelled over and over and over again, or you counterspelling your opponent's stuff like you just have to you just have to jam a lot of games of magic. And it's not it's not a complex or it's not a simple thing. It's a very complex thing with a lot of moving parts. And you just start to start to get get a feel for it the more you play with and against counterspells. Yeah. And I think figuring out that like that crest, that peak of like, all right, this is
1: the point of no return in terms of I'm at a point in the game where I cannot top out again without playing a counterspell you know like getting to that point where like the board is in a place where i feel like i can take over this game with my one counterspell i have in hand and then potentially one counterspell left in my deck or whatever and i think you have to in those situations be very very rigorous about the kind of thing that you're going to counter because you've you've put yourself in this position where like i have the ultimate answer for whatever they play so if they play something that like looks bad it's like well yeah they have a four five in play but I have a Wishcoin Crab. Like, yeah, they could have a, a, a trick, but I can counter that trick when it comes around. Like, I don't need... I already have the onboard answer for this thing they're playing. I think you've got to be really... I think it's very easy to go, well, this thing costs five mana, so, so I might as well counter it, you know?
0: Right, right. That's sort of like the saving your removal right level up yeah 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 we didn't really talk about that with the counterspells it's the same thing yeah certainly
1: yeah there's a lot of play and i think it's nice that guilds of ravnica gives us the opportunity to play with counterspells in a meaningful way in a non-cube environment
0: yeah because that's really where you uh sort of wet your feet in in the counterspell metagaming as it were as in cube yeah absolutely after getting your your crater hoof behemoth counterspelled for the third time you really start to start to figure out what's up
1: yeah, then then your gears really get tickled.
0: Or or if you're me, mana tithe man, I'm so terrified of that card. <laughs> That's so funny. That card's so bad. (laughs) That really is. That and Force Spike. I used to love drafting those cards in cube when it was singleton, just so I didn't have to think about playing around them in pod. And now that it's leagues, I just get crushed left and right by those cards. You
1: poor, poor man. All right, next week, we are going to look at the full spoiler of Ultimate Masters. We're going to sort of try and synthesize what we think the archetypes are, get you all primed and ready for when the format goes live in paper and online.
0: Yeah, looking forward to it. That sounds like a good place to wrap it up here. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. We are still doing our Guilds of Ravnica treasure hunt.
1: You can grab some screenshots of some sweet board states. We have the list, exclamation mark, treasure hunt in either Ben's Twitch chat or my Twitch chat. We'll give you the full 15 achievement list. If you unlock five of those, you are entered into a giveaway for a draft set on Magic Online, and we will be doing a 15-hour stream sometime over Ben's winter break, so that'll be coming at you shortly. Yeah, starting see more of those rolling in on arena too feels good does feel good if you want to get in touch with us on twitch i'm at twitch.tv slash lord tupperware ben is at twitch.tv slash mr metronome he is streaming up a storm i think he's streaming more than i am these days it's incredible it's really great to have ben back on the twitch streets you can tweet at us Hashtag I'm with Ben, hashtag I'm with Ethan for anything, really, (laughs) at uh, those same usernames. And you can also check us out on Twitter at the podcast at Lords of Limited.
0: If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com.
1: Check out Lords of Limited on YouTube. We have our first Guilds of Ravnica Showdown video available to you that came out last week. We'll have more of those coming to you thanks to the folks over at Patreon. Thank you so much, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited.
0: Thanks, everybody. See you later. red card in the pack probably ornery goblin or smort <laughs> probably <laughs> what just what sound came out of my mouth Mort? <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry that was so funny to
1: me <laughs> I <don't know>. okay <laughs>